So welcome to our bonus podcast. I'm the host Donatas Urbanas, and I'm joined by two vets that every top domestic league would be proud of having their competition. So you can only imagine how proud I feel of having them both uh, on this show. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Eric McCollum and Jace, uh, James K uh, Gist. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. And yeah, guys, since you both play in the Turkish league, Eric McCollum plays for Karşıyaka Izmir and James is playing for Bahçeşehir Koleji. Uh, probably we just wanted to say that our thoughts and prayers are with everyone affected by the earthquake in, in Turkey and neighbor countries uh, recently. So thank God that you were uh, pretty far away from, from these places that were damaged by the earthquake. So, I mean, the situation in Izmir and Istanbul is, is pretty safe, right? Yeah, it's um, stable here. Um, I think the worst part was just the electricity. I went off a little bit in the middle of the night. But other than that, I didn't feel any tremors. Um, I was sleeping, but definitely praying for those who were affected and for those who um, you know haven't been reached yet. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's it's a difficult situation. It's scary, you know, because I mean, a lot of people lost their lives. A lot of people are missing right now, and I mean, it, it kind of changes everything and with the weather. The way it is right now, really cold, snowing, like. That becomes a problem too, you know. So uh, definitely, prayers up, you know, and hopefully, you know, us as a Turkish basketball league and, and teams and people with that can try to do something to try to help out a little bit. I don't know, say care packages, you know, things like that to just try to help in situations like this that are unexpected. It's a tough time for sure. And do you have, uh, do you guys have any friends from Gaziantep, for example? How do you, how how they are doing out there? Yeah, I have one uh, friend who plays there, Jackie Carmichael. So I reached out to him just to see how everything was. Um, haven't heard back yet. Um, so, you know, just waiting to respond. I know it's probably hectic and, you know, his family's probably reaching out and everything. So I'll keep in touch and you know, hopefully he responds back as soon as possible. Yeah, it was, it was you know, I know the team guys and Tep is out there. It's, it's, it was a lot of places that were hit. You know, what's crazy is I was born, I was born in Adana, Turkey. You know, uh, I know Adana took a big hit as well. Um, so, you know, like I said, prayers go out to everybody involved, you know, families involved. You know, it's a stressful time right now here. Yeah, that's true and that's sad. But let's talk something that gives people joy. Uh, let's talk uh, basketball. And today in our pod, we'll address Olympiakos title odds, Dwayne Bacon's middle finger, reasons behind Mike James and Wade Baldwin blackout. Kyrie Irving trade, and we'll put our starters for the hypothetical EuroLeague All-Star game. So um, just before we start, this podcast is sponsored by Ardu Prime. Ardu Prime is a financial broker allowing customers to trade Forex and CFDs. They were founded in Greece in 1999 and they are fully regulated. This year, Ardu Prime has, be has become the premium partner of the Turkish Air Airlines EuroLeague. So follow Ardu Prime on Instagram and you'll be able to win tickets to EuroLeague games every week. And I believe we have listeners and viewers who are involved in trading. So visit ArduPrime.com for more information. And guys, usually we address the NBA topic at, at the end of the podcast, but this was something we cannot ignore for so long. Kyrie Irving was traded to the Dallas Mavericks and for Irving and Markeith Morris, Brooklyn got Dorian Finney-Smith, Spencer Dinwiddie, 2029 first round pick and 2027, 29 second round picks. 
what you get when you combine one of the most skilled NBA players and with one of the most skilled players coming off Europe? You know, for me watching it, um, as a fan, I'm excited. Um, I think it's electric to see, you know, those two guys with the ball in their hands, um, the things they do. Um, it's just special to watch. I think the ratings are going to be really high in Dallas. Um, as a basketball player, I almost feel sorry for the rest of the team because no one's going to touch the ball. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Luca and Kyrie are going to dribble the hell out of it. Um, but it's going to be fun for us fans to watch. But if you're if you're a guy who likes to create, play pick or anything, like you're not going to get many touches. I think um, what makes it possible that it could work is that Dallas is surrounded with shooters and defenders and guys who play a role. So, you know, it helps them that there's not many other guys who are high usage players. Um, it allows uh, Kyrie to be a scorer. You know, he's a natural scorer, kind of like when he played with LeBron and he can leave the facilitating to Luca. And you know, that's kind of where we've seen him thrive um, in those Cleveland days. And when we've seen him have so much success, not saying he can't create, but he's just a natural born scorer. And it's, it's difficult when you have to balance, you know, your ability to score anytime and then trying to, you know, please people and make people happy. So, you know, I'm interested to see how it can work, but for sure, um, it's going to be a lot of isolation basketball out there. I mean, it already was, but now it's it's probably going to lead the NBA. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's definitely exciting. It's a big trade for sure. Blockbuster, I guess you can call it, because it was something that kind of came out of nowhere and with limited time to really be able to make, you know, clean decisions. Um, but having a guy like Kyrie play alongside a guy like Luka, like Eric said, who's ball dominant, makes a lot of the decisions. I think it helps give Luka a little break with having to be so ball dominant, you know, even though the impact he has. But I think he steps into the role where Spencer Dinwiddie was. You know, he was the playmaker off the ball. You know, he was the one that got the, the points scored as well. And I think the one person that probably might take the biggest hit might be Tim Hardaway Jr. from this, only because you got Luka and now you got Kyrie. And they both can fill the basket up, you know, very well. Luka's capable of getting triple doubles every night, so he's definitely sharing and looking for the shooters around. But, you know, Tim Hardaway, I guess he's just he'll be the third, I guess, player there that they're expecting to put up solid numbers on top of what Kyrie's capable of doing and what Luke is doing. I think it's going to be exciting, though, and definitely looking forward to Kyrie's first game with Luka. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, and I remember, talk, speaking of uh, Luka Doncic, I, I remember Eric once shared uh, a great story of how he met Luka Doncic in the EuroLeague. And I actually remember that the last uh, playoff series he won in the EuroLeague was actually against Panathinaikos in 17-18 season. Uh, it was the playoff series between Real Madrid and Panathinaikos. James, what, what, what was your biggest personal memory of Luka Doncic? Not just from that series, but also just from the whole experience because he started playing in EuroLeague like since he was a kid, 15 or 16 year old. Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, the most surprising thing about Luka Doncic was playing against him from such a young age to even the year he went to the NBA was that he was a player that was trusted with some of the biggest moments on the team full of stars. You had the Rudy Fernandez, you had the Sergio Yules, you know, you had Eddie Tavares, who's there, he makes the big plays. And you had Felipe Reyes, who was there during the early years of uh, Luca. You had a lot of players there, J.C. Carroll even. You had players there that demanded the ball. But when it came to making the biggest plays of the game, when it came to, you know, getting the job done, they trusted Luca. 
they trusted Luca, and Luca actually made the plays happen. That was for me the most impressive thing. Even when he was, you know, with Compazzo on the court, I think the first game or so we played against them, Compazzo had got hurt, and so he didn't play a game one or game two. He didn't play until he got to Madrid. And I said, you know, people asked me what they thought, and I said, you know, my thing is. Campato is a little bit harder to guard. He's more, he gets the team involved so much. You know, he's a great player. He's defensively effective and all these things. I said, but at least with Luca on the court, you kind of know what you're getting. You know, he's going to have the ball. You know, you kind of got to stop him and keep him doing our thing. So with Campato at the mix, it was like, all right, we got Luca. We did it. We managed to do a good job the first two games of the series. Um, but game three, man, and game four was just. Luca turned. He he became who he was. He who he was who he was. He showed that in the series. They had a lot of good players around him as well that played good basketball. But Luca was definitely, I don't want to say ahead of his time, but he definitely was something special. You know, seeing it in European standard, and now you see how it correlated to the NBA standard, where it's more space, you know, more possessions, more everything. You know, and he's he's definitely playing at an elite level, and it's good to see. It's good to see. Yeah, probably. I believe that you were also one of these guys like Eric uh, who knew what Luca was all about and different from these NBA uh, analysts and NBA people who were questioning if Luca Doncic can dominate in, in the NBA. Probably you were also one of those guys who believe that Doncic going to be a huge threat even for the NBA stars. I mean, if you want me to be honest, 100%, the fact that Doncic was doing everything that he was doing at such a young age, I was like, where's his ceiling? You know, because everybody says they, they, you know, you draft on potential. You base everything off potential. Well, at this time, Luca has won EuroLeague. He's been on the all-tournament team with a national team. He's played against some of the greatest stars, you know, since he was 15, 16. You know, he's done everything. He's hit game winners. He's made great passes. He can shoot. He's strong. He's tall. You know, um, for me, it was like, what more can he do? And as right now we're seeing in the NBA, you know, he's putting up great numbers and stuff like this. But at the end of the day, you know, he's been an all-star. It's like I think the only thing left for him to do is to win at the NBA level because he's done everything else. He's probably one of the most decorated Europeans coming into the NBA, you know, aside from like maybe like a Tony Parker or I don't know. Molly Ginobili is not European, but he won a EuroLeague, you know, uh, or Dirk Nowitzki, you know, who was with the German national team. I mean, He's probably one of the most decorated European players coming into the league and actually doing what he's doing. My question was, what can he do better? And just keeping the pace that he's keeping and what he's doing right now, you know, it's crazy, especially in the West. You know, at the time when he got into the league, he was dealing with a lot of athletic guards night in and night out with the Dame Lillards. I think Westbrook was still in OKC. He had James Harden in Houston. You had Darren Fox who just came in in, you know, Sacramento. You had guards that you're seeing night in night out along with going to the east coast and i was sure like wasn't so sure of the athleticism was that going to take a part but the way he slowed the game down and plays at his own pace and takes control you know it's it's a beauty to see man it's a beauty to see it's a beauty to see and he can definitely be effective like he is it's not fake it's real it's real for people that don't think that it's real he really he really is like this and to add to that you know i think the only thing he can really do um to up his game, I think would now to be to take care of his body, you know, to define himself, um, you know, do those things like kind of LeBron did, those things that give you longevity, you know, lower that body fat, um, continue to be disciplined in what you eat, your lifestyle off the court, because on the court, I mean, the kid has everything. I mean, he's special, but I think to take that next winning step, because Luca's required to do so much 
you know, rebounding, assisting, scoring, creation, that if you're not in the physically fit form, you know, it could be really difficult over an 82-game season, over a playoff run. And now I think that's why they wanted Kyrie, just because he had to do so much. It was only human for you to get sometimes tired in the fourth quarter or sometimes tired down the stretch of the playoffs. I'd like to see him uh, maybe tone up that body some, get rid of some of that baby fat, um, you know, start to – really focus in on that weight room. I think when he's already unstoppable, but when he does that, oh, I mean, the, the efficiency, everything is going to climb even to another level. Yeah. I believe that he will do that. Uh, I, I And I believe that all the greatest players did that uh, physical change at some point of their careers. I don't know if it's related to the experience or, you know, with years you change your mindset on what's needed and maybe look at some point he will understand that he, he hit that ceiling and now the adjustment that he needs to make to become better and to lead Mavs to the NBA title let's say is his physical uh, presence and maybe that's when he will uh, work more on that during offseason which is not easy because he's always available for Slovenia national team and playing for the national team uh, doesn't help you know that much uh, in terms of improving your body. What's what's interesting, uh, speaking of blockbuster trades, uh, I believe that actually we need trades in the EuroLeague to add some drama, and especially at the mid-season, where players and even fans, you know, the fatigue kicks in for everybody, so we need this out-of-nowhere excitement. And what's funny that I actually had forgotten was that James Gist was actually one of those who were involved in rare trades that we had in Europe. It was 11 years ago, Panathinaikos, Unikaja Malaga, uh, they traded two uh, big guys, Andy Panko for James Gist. What do you remember about that kind of trade? That was a crazy situation, you know. At the end of the day, it was one of those situations where, for me, it wasn't expected. And what's crazy is in the summertime, Pat at the Nikos had actually reached out to me. You know, they wanted to sign me for the year. And I had those are my top two choices was Pat at the Nikos and Malaga. And it was like, you know, if I go to Pat at the Nikos, first of all, Habradovich, you know, had just left. You know, he just retired. Um, and most of the team that was winning all the Euro Leagues, they retired or left and went somewhere else, you know. So, you know, I was kind of just balancing what would be more beneficial for me at my time in that career. And, you know, I, I figured if we played EuroLeague and Panathinaikos, that if EuroLeague was finished, you know, nobody really paid too much attention to the Greek League. But at least if I went to Malaga, you're still playing in the top domestic league over in Europe. Um, and at the same time, you can compete for something. You know, we had a good team that year. We could have competed for something uh, special in Spain. And so I just felt like, you know, that was probably a better situation for me. But fast forward to the trade, you know, when I found out I got traded, it was like, at first of all, I had no idea. I found out after the game, um, the last game of the first round of EuroLeague, I think we played Cholet or Shalom or something like this, um, and we we beat them. And one of the reporters was like, James, so, you know, how does it, you know, are you, are you sure this is going to be your last game playing here in Malaga? And I was like, last game? <laughs> I had no idea. I think I just had 17 points and like a double-double, maybe 10 rebounds, a couple highlight dunks and things like this. I'm like, this is my last game. Like, I had no idea. So afterwards, I got on the phone, talked to my agent. He said, yeah. So it looks like you're going to be moving to Greece. And I had like, I want to say like 18 hours to pack everything up. Boom, move to Greece, you know. And so it was it was hectic at the time. I didn't have, uh, I just had my daughter, but she wasn't staying with me at the time. So it was just me and my wife. Um, so it was 
as difficult it was to make the move, you know, we were able to do it in the time frame that we did it. But now if I had the situation that I have now to make that move would be, be a nightmare, you know, trying to get everything situated to go to another team. Uh, but it did happen to be one of the best trades, I guess, in EuroLeague history. If, to my understanding, I think it's the only one player for player, contract for contract. I don't think that it's happened anywhere else, you know, or with anybody else in, in that aspect. Um, and so it, it turned out to be a good thing. I felt like I was in paradise when I was in Malaga, you know, just the city, the team, organization, everything worked, you know, it was, it was amazing. And to see that, you know, dang, I'm going to Greece. And I had no idea what Greece was like, don't get me wrong. No idea. <laughs> and when I got there, you know, I'm in the city, like, you know, Northern, Northern city of Athens, but I'm just, I don't, I'm not around any water. I'm not around anything. I'm just, in the middle of the city and it's just like dang we were on the beach you know it was it was 30 degrees celsius in malaga right now in december and now i come to greece and it's raining it's cold i'm in the middle of the city there's nothing i'm just like this is a big change had no idea what was coming ahead and to to figure out that you know that ended up being the start of my seven-year run in Panathinaikos. you know it turned out to be something good turned out to be something good and i mean it's probably something that you would probably want to look for more in europe but it's just not easy. You know, with the trades that happen in the NBA, you're still in America. You know, you're still in the USA. Everybody there speaks English. Everybody speaks, you know, you're comfortable, you, your family. It is not, it's, it's not easy to have to pick up everything and move in the last moment, but it's doable in America. When you talk about EuroLeague, you're going not only from one country to another, you're dealing with a completely different culture, you know, than what you're, you're used to in the moment. Who knows how long it happens? I mean, there's just so many intangibles that take place when a trade actually happens. You know, in the States, it's a little bit more easy. I think it'll be a little bit more difficult to do it on a consistent basis in Europe, Euroleague, for me. After my experience, I think it would be a little bit more difficult. And um, for me, I'm kind of torn on it. I think um, for the players, as James said, it's extremely difficult. Um, if you're by yourself, if you're a single guy or you're not with your family, it's much easier to just pack up and leave. But once you have children, a wife, you know, stability, kids are in daycare, different type of things, just things people do also in NBA, like it can be extremely difficult. But then I think on the other hand, like there's some teams who don't use a player, you know, the correct way and they won't let that player go free and play um, because, you know, one reason, maybe they don't want to play against him. Another reason, they're trying to get him to take as little money as possible to leave. Or a third reason, they feel like they're getting nothing in return. So, like, the trades could be beneficial for guys like, say, Andrew Andrews right now in Panthenikos, who's not getting used. And I feel like Panthenikos is holding on to him hostage. And if, you know, maybe there was a trade or there was a player they could get a return, they might be more willing to let him go. You know, just my opinion. You know, I don't know the full dynamic of the situation. Just I just know a player isn't being used. A player isn't dressing with a the team. There's no need need to keep that player, you know, especially if the players agreed to leave, whatever. But those type of situations, and he's not the only one, but there's some guys who maybe don't get used right and could get held um held back or, you know, cannot reach their full potential. And so in order for your career to go where you want it to go, you know, instead of eating a year where you don't play the whole season, maybe you go somewhere else and you're able to kind of hit the ground running. And so those are some situations where I could see the trade being beneficial for fans. It would be extremely exciting. Um, it could also take away from, I guess, loyalty, because if we could be traded, um, I think players' mindsets would even shift even more, you know, towards what they look for um, in teams and, you know, history, those type of things. So That's real true. Um, 
I want to piggyback on some of that too, because a lot of times, you know, guys aren't so hip to what to expect when they come over to Europe, you know, and you could be caught in situations similar to what Andrew Andrews is caught in right now. Um, I haven't been following it closely, but I have heard some things, you know, about it and just what's going on. And I mean, a lot of times contract situations are important. You know, everything that you have in your contract is everything that's expected and everything that you should not even have to bat an eye at. I know a lot of teams in Europe, you have horror stories of people not honoring everything that happens and they try to figure out ways to break these things. But when you have your contract kind of gridiron, gridlock, and the things that are expected and what goes forward, you know, for the young players that's coming up and to be, you know, at the next level or the highest level that they can get to over here, pay attention to those things. Pay attention to the small print when it comes to this stuff because that really has something that is – uh, important to be able to go forward with it. Uh, also, you know, these teams, you know, they look at guys to be loyal to them. We're not from these countries. <laughs> We're from America. You know, we come over here. We love basketball. We want to be here. You know, at the same time, we love the, the crowds. We love, you know, everything that comes along with it. But at the end of the day, you know, when it comes to trade talk and stuff like this, fans hold a lot of us, you know, hostage when it comes to saying, oh, you're not loyal. You're only playing here for the money. It's like, well, I came thousands of miles, you know, from America to come over here and just do a job that I love to do. I'm more so representing the name. I'm representing the name on the jersey, but I'm also representing me. I represent my family name that's on the back of my jersey. You know, there's a lot more that comes to it. So, you know, there's definitely some benefits, definitely major benefits that come from it in these situations. But, you know, it's all kind of things that come into place, you know, and intangibles that come with it going forward as far as the trade talks, you know, and uplifting somebody to a whole other country. Yeah, those people who question loyalty should put themselves in your situation or in, in their uh, regular daily life. If they had some offer from another uh, job, let's say, and it would be way higher paid than the current one, they wouldn't raise any questions over their loyalty. It's very unlikely that they will say, oh, I'm loyal to this company. I'm, I'm moving. <laughs> I mean, facts. It, it, it's nice to play for those historical clubs with these fan bases, but people don't understand that it's, it's, it's more than just basketball. You're, as you said, James, you came here to earn as much as money as possible because, because the player's career is not, not so long. So you have to build up your future. And over there, your job is to, to get the maximum paycheck uh, as possible because you never know when your uh, end of their career when's, when is on the co corner, when the next big injury is on the corner. And I'm happy that you both guys managed to, to go uh, all these, uh, to go through all these uh, obstacles and, and challenges that uh, hits some of the greatest players here uh, in Europe. But I mean, a lot of things has to be considered when people start questioning the loyalty. And it cannot be questioned, at least for, for in, in James' case. You spent there almost seven years. That's the second longest tenure after Mike Batiste, another Panathinaikos uh, legend. So I believe that Panathinaikos fans should be should be okay with the, with the loyalty you showed to the club. But since we mentioned Panathinaikos, how do you feel about the club? Uh, how do, do you feel about the current state uh, of, uh, of this franchise? Because we have this topic about Dwayne Bacon and what he did in Basconia, but I, I believe that it's uh, very connected to the frustration that both Bacon and some other players might be uh, feeling at the moment. Team is inconsistent, they're losing. The body language that they uh, showed not just once a month, but consistent, consistent, consistently is something 
that's you know is is concerning probably um i mean i you know for me like i said i played in power for seven years so it's definitely a team that i follow uh i know that it's been difficult the last few seasons for them to kind of find something consistent um but to the same nature You know, I played there seven years. I never started the season and finished the season with the same coach or the same roster. I went That's and crazy. had a new coach almost every year. I went through eight coaches while I was there. And when it came to foreign players, you know, they didn't last the whole season. You know, I managed to stick it out and be there, you know, greatly. I wasn't put on the chopping block and they told me to get out. But, uh, you know, the, the consistency of having a roster that you can build around was not ever easy. Um, that was very difficult. Seeing it right now, I understand where the players might be. And it's a little bit more difficult because the players don't have the support from the fans. You know, I've never seen Owaka empty or, you know, half full for yearly games. Yearly games, I mean, it seats, what, 17,000? It would at least be 15,000 in there. And for the big games, it would be over capacity. So now to know that the, the fans, you know, aren't really supporting the team, they're not backing the team, that's definitely, you know, hurting the organization and what it looks like and what it represents. But also at the same time, the players feel that. I understand the frustration that Bacon might have, you know, in the moment. You know, the team's not playing good, all this stuff. You know, is it right what he did? No, of course not. It got caught on TV. You know, it's on camera. That's the thing now. Back in the day, there weren't so many cameras. Everything was on social media. So you could do some things that might get away with it. Now – They're going to catch everything. They're going to catch everything. So, you know, it's kind of difficult to say what he should have did or what actually transpired. I don't know what was said. I don't know what was going on over there. Basconia has some of the best fans in Spain. I'll say that. For me, I think they probably had the best fans in Spain next to Malaga. They had Barca and Madrid. But Basconia fans, when you play there, their fans are really into the game. They're really on top of you. They're really pressing you. They have one of the strongest home courts in Europe. Um, so it could have been a lot of factors that, that – came into the reason of why he did what he did and stuff like this, but I can get the understanding and the fact that, you know, right now is just not a good time in Panathinaikos. And right now, it could be a frustrating time for the players. You know, that's kind of, I think, what was caught in one moment. Yeah, for sure. I think that Dwayne was not the first and not the last player that showed the middle finger uh, during the game. We just had some few examples recently in the NBA, starting from Draymond Green, of course, Kyrie Irving. There was also Kyle Kuzma, if I remember uh, correctly. So, and these players were fine, and I'm, I'm sure, uh, of course, I'm not encouraging Euroleague to find Dwayne Bacon, but for his wellness and his future in the Euroleague, I think that he should, he should be able to control himself a little bit better because not just that middle finger stuff happened in Basconia game. There was also that halftime interview uh, during the game in Madrid and he since he didn't have the best image not on the court but also off the court looking at his long-term future in the EuroLeague these things might hurt his stock because talent-wise he's exceptional player and I believe that he could be a great scorer for any top uh, EuroLeague team that is competing for the uh, title but those especially those coaches who are proving uh, the biggest signings they might question uh, his behavior. And even though this is 
this is bad, but basically it's nothing, this, this middle finger thing. But at some point it will come to those decision makers mind that, oh, you remember there was this and that. So it doesn't help his track record. Let's say we're talking about- If you're gonna check now. that, then you gotta check the fans too in the organizations. Because at the end of the day as players, I don't think that we have any protection against what fans say, what fans do and how it comes to us. I don't think we have any protection as far as that goes. You know, fans, they're allowed to say and do and do all kinds of things. It's not like in America, if it was the NBA or let's say a professional event, somebody do something or spit or said something crazy to you. You see guys, you know, getting people ejected all the time. You know, if somebody do something, everybody in the stands, first of all, they're going to rewind the camera. They're going to see where it came from. Everybody in the stands is going to point to that person. They're either going to go to jail or they're never going to be able to come back to this event or any event at this location. But here in Europe, that would never happen. You know, I dare security to go up in the stands in Partizan Arena or go up in Red Star Arena and try to take somebody out of the stands. I dare somebody to go in Olympiacos or Panthenikos and take somebody out of the stands because they did something crazy. It wouldn't happen. You know, so the fans, and not to just put those teams out there, but there are fan bases here that can be hostile and that can push you to the point of being like, dang, you know, now if I do something I'm wrong, it's not the fans' fault. It's got to be even ground when it comes to that. If it's not going to be even ground, you can't penalize Bacon. You can probably talk about it, but you're going to penalize him? You know? Yeah, I think I think they got to for sure find out, you know, what happened, do their research. Um, obviously, you know, Bacon's experience, you know, he's 27, he's played a long time. You want him to control the emotions, but he's human. You know, if you – there's trigger words, there's things people say. You know, you never know what could have been said. Um, it could be something that, you know, was a trauma for him. could be something that – you know, could have been, you know, unethical, whatever. Um, but, you know, he has to control his emotions in that moment. Um, my advice always is just to cover your mouth and say something, you know, for those players out there, if you don't want to get fined or you don't want to get anything, say what you want to say, cover your lips, and now you're safe. Um, but if you do anything that shows something, oftentimes, unfairly, um, they always catch the second response, you know. And, you know, it's not right, it's not fair, but, you know, they never – going to look at the fans and they and sometimes they do crazy stuff. Um, and we've seen it. I mean, James played in Greece, so, you know, he's seen things thrown, uh, spit, all this type, like any type of thing. Like I played in Greece two years too. So I know when you're playing in a different uh, environment and if they want their team to win, anything goes. And unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't make for a safe environment, but you know, I'm not saying the Basconia fans did something. I'm, I don't know. I'm just saying, usually if someone flicks you off, um, you had to do something. There was a response. You know, you don't just do that randomly. Yeah, I agree. By, by the way, what you mentioned Partizan. What is interesting that probably for the first time in their history, they banned one fan for life because they caught him on camera spitting at the referee. So that's that's amazing change that we actually have right now in the in Europe in the EuroLeague uh, basketball scene where clubs try to make sure that even if they're playing at home they're trying to make sure that fans uh, are acting as they should be and not making the basketball arena in some kind of you know jungle where nobody's going to be punished for whatever they're doing inside the building because as I mentioned about this loyalty thing I also think that everybody who is acting who, who encouraged this bad behavior they should think of him of themselves if they were working in the office and somebody is shouting some terrible things at them 
uh, if they're spitting on them, how would they feel actually just doing their job regularly and they have somebody spitting on them and cursing their family and stuff like that. So yes, it's sports, but at the end of the day, this is job and everybody should be respected uh, the way how all of us wants uh, to be respected. So I, re I was really curious to hear, you know, your your thoughts and ideas where this line should be drawn and how it should be controlled you know not just from the player standpoint we all agree that it's bad but it happens out of frustration and emotions but how to control those uh those fans and where the line is is crossed and where not i think that before anything is actually done on either side that a full investigation should be taken out you hear about stuff like that all the time when when you know things happen it's like okay it's under investigation we're going to do a thorough investigation on both sides. We're going to see they have enough cameras, they have enough microphones, they know enough people to be able to figure out what really transpired and what happened. And I think that that's probably something that will help as opposed to just because you've seen one video, now you're going to impose a fine on the player, you know, or now you're going to impose a fine on the team. I think that it needs to be a full investigation on things, and not just this situation, but any situation that comes up in the future, if they want to try to figure out where the line is drawn, you know, you have to start there and then it goes to see, you know, when accountability is taking place, you know, now what are the levels of punishment? What are the levels of this? You know, what happens? You know, I think that, you know, those things have to be discussed because for too long, you know, the European atmosphere, when it comes to soccer, when it comes to football, let's say, when it comes to football, when it comes to basketball, you know, these type of environments, they can get really testy. They can get really testy. A lot of people don't understand how crazy these environments get unless you're there to experience it. You can see it on TV or you can watch it. Or you can hear somebody like me or Eric tell you about it. But if you're not there to see it, you'll never really fully understand how crazy it can really get. And, you know, those are things that, you know, if you want to talk about lines being drawn, these are things that have to be addressed. Yeah, I think people don't understand that because, I mean, there's some games where I wouldn't have my wife come. Um because I felt unsafe for her. And I felt like if somebody messed with her in the crowd, I wouldn't be able to focus the game. The game's over for me. Like, and you know, fans know that. Like if, if you're married, you understand how you feel about your wife. And like, if you've seen somebody bothering her, no oh, game's over. Like we're in the crowd. I don't care if there's 20,000 there. I don't care if it's the crazy section. That's just what it has to be. So I would keep her from some of those games because I knew the type of environment we were going to. And it's a shame like that you have to do that sometimes because you know like what these fans might do and you know there's a difference between being passionate and then creating an unsafe environment yep, that is 100 true yeah talking about bothering players star players what do you think who bothered wade baldwin and mike james uh last week uh, what what was interesting and what was actually great for european basketball because i i feel that we need players to be vocal and especially go even public on social media to start this dis discussion, uh, to, to make the whole European conversation active. That was great that they both uh, went on Twitter. Okay, I think that Mike James went on Twitter after that play where he passed on uh, making a wide open shot in the end of the game against Real Madrid when Monaco was uh, down by three. Wade Baldwin ad addressed his mistake in the um, last seconds of the game uh, against Valencia and said he he was disgust disgusted uh, the way he 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 acted in in the last episode, uh, throwing the ball out of bounds. Uh, but could you explain? You know, is it like? Um, physical uh is it where fatigue actually kicks in and what causes those uh, situations where uh skilled top level players they do mistakes like that 
So for for me, I think a lot of it is, you know, fatigue. Um, you try and do what's best for your team. You know, you're trying to make the correct decision every time. So you think, for instance, for Mike's situation, um, you know, they go and they set the guard to guard screen at the top of the screen. Normally, every team switches that. Um, they'd make a defensive mistake. Both guys go with the guy with the ball. Mike's alone at the top of the key. As a player, I'm automatically thinking, number one, I'm the leading scorer in the team, one of the leading scorers in the EuroLeague. Number two, there's probably an X out, which means basically someone from the corner on defense is supposed to rotate up when he sees that, especially when Mike James is open. So I think Mike James was thinking there was going to be someone there. I mean, you think the whole game he's been boxed in one, he's guarded a lot of times, he's double teamed. There's so much defensive attention. You never think you're going to get a wide open shot. Like I would never think I'm going to get a wide open shot for game. And so like, it's almost like too good to be true where you start to overthink and you're anticipating the defense to do something. And, you know, he tried to make that extra pass. That's what we're taught. You get that ball in the wing. Usually it's a rotation. You throw that ball to the corner. The corner three is one of the easiest threes to make. Uh, Blossom game's a good shooter. I believe he was in that corner. And I think he just, you know, he was playing off his instinct. You know, he was, you know, in the moment and, you know, he didn't expect to be open. And it can happen. Like there's some games where, you know, fans probably don't understand like what happened. But like when you're fatigued, when you want to win, when you're trying to do everything, when the game happens so fast, like you literally have a half a second to make a choice. Sometimes I come off a screen and if I don't shoot in that second, it's no longer there. If I don't make that pass, it's not there. If I don't throw the lob to James at the right time, his feet aren't going to be correct. He's not going to be able to finish it. Like literally it's like a half a second to one second to make every choice. You know, as for Wade, I think, you know, they were running around at the end of the clock, um, you know, trying to avoid the foul. A lot of times some guys, you know, hold the ball and, you know, what he was doing was trying to run out the clock, which is smart. You know, they wanted to run the clock, take time off, don't allow them to foul. I think he just, you know, was going a little bit too fast. Um, their spacing was poor and um, he threw the ball away. In that situation, he should dribble it out. He should have held it because he's a 92% free throw shooter, excellent free throw shooter, excellent in the mid range. But, you know, what he was doing was unselfish. It's the correct play. It just was bad execution. And I think, um, that's what happens when the stakes are high, when the game is fast. Um, and when you're trying to make the right play, sometimes it happens. Like it doesn't happen much, but like once or twice a year, you're going to have a moment where you're like, what was I thinking? What, why did I do that? And <laughs> I can't explain it. I know James knows what I'm saying, but you're just like, you rewind that play in your head over and over. But what I love from them both is accountability. It's a sign of leadership. So many times people point the finger like, when they did something wrong, when something didn't go right in the game. And I'm a type of guy where I think you need to look at what you did, what you could improve. And the fact that, you know, Mike stood up, not only I'm sure he told his teammates that, but the fact that he, you know, said it on, on social media platform for those fans, for those people who aren't aware, you know, oftentimes it's not none of their business, you know, what goes on in the locker room. But, you know, he was showing that respect to the fans, to those people that, you know, that's on me. And that's what a leader does. Same with Wade Baldwin. And they're both guards. Guards have the ball in their hands. They make a lot of decisions. And that kind of sets the tone for the team when they see guys, because oftentimes guys want to get applauded. They want to get praised. They want to take all the good that comes with it. But when you mess up, you got to be ready to take, you know, some of the bad. And, and I love that. I saw that from them. That's maturity, that's experience, and that's growth. And, you know, if anything, fans can get behind that, support that, and it sets the tone for their team and brings them closer together. As you see Jordan Lloyd coming in, tweeting back at him, showing him, like, no, like, there's things I could have did that didn't affect the play. And a lot of people don't agree with it, but 
one play does not affect the game. There's so many countless things throughout the game that could have changed it. One made shot here, one stop here, one less turnover. Like, okay, everything comes down to the last play in the minds of people, but maybe you wouldn't have been in that situation if things were done differently throughout the other quarters. You never know. Right. No, definitely. I agree with you on that for sure. It's it's tough, you know, to look at because, again, piggybacking off what you said, where one play doesn't decide the game, never decides the game. You can look at all kind of moments that led up to it and what happened prior to it, why we were even in this situation. I think what a lot of people were hung up on Mike James' situation was that, you know, Mike James has this uh, – the narrative about him is that he's just score, 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 because he does all kind of crazy things. But Mike actually really likes to pass the ball, and he's a great passer at that. You know, and in the situation that Eric brought up, you know, you're you're expecting the next help to come because of the defensive laps that happened to, pre- to play prior to that. You know, so I think that in his mind, like Eric said, he didn't plan to be wide open. He was already thinking to play ahead, you know, at the time. Fatigue could have something to do with that, but at the same time, I think it was just him in the moment of, like, you know, we're going to get the best shot out here, you know, and I know that he can shoot. Like you said, Boston game is a good shooter. Um, and making that play and making the extra pass shows that he's for the team and he's not just for himself. And a lot of people highlight that Mike is the type of player where he's all about himself, and that's not necessarily true. You know, I've had the opportunity to play with him for two years in Panthenikos, and I followed him since prior to him playing in the EuroLeague, NBA, and all that stuff, you know, so uh, – that's just, I think, one of those situations where, okay, you could say it was a lapse. He was wide open. Maybe he didn't look at the basket. It was the anticipation. It was, you know, the last seconds of the game, so fatigue. You know, when they say you're tired, the first thing that goes is your mind, you know. Um, that could have been an issue, but I think that it showed the unselfishness. And, you know, like Eric said, one of the biggest things was taking accountability. You know, when you take accountability for your actions and what you think as a player like Mike or a player like Wade, they have a lot of pride. They have a lot of, you know, heart especially when it comes to the game of basketball, they want to win. The winners, you know, at the end of the day, if they feel like they had something to do with the reason that the team lost, they will be the first one on the front line saying that, you know, this was me. I'll make sure not to make that stick again so that we can win the next game. But also both of these plays that they made were just an unselfish act. Both of them were unselfish acts. And for everybody looking at it like, oh, why didn't Mike shoot it? Oh, why did Wade do this? It was because those were the right plays to do. It just didn't, you know, with Wade, you want to run the clock out. With Mike, if the extra pass is there, boom, I trust that my shooter is going to make this. That was a trust thing. It just didn't play out that way, and I hope everybody doesn't overlook that part, you know, which fans do because they see the highlight and they're just like, ah, they say all the negative things. But it's it's deeper when you break down the game of basketball and, and the things that happen. You know, if you understand it, then you understand those plays right there. Guys, we actually rarely speak about uh, Maccabi. They're always in the middle. They're not very consistent, so it's not like they win five games in a row and suddenly everybody starts talking about them. And they're slightly above 50% of, of wins so far. Their record is 12 victories and 11 losses. What do you think about them? Do, do you see them in the playoffs? I actually do. Um, anytime you have a guard like Lorenzo Brown, I mean, you got a chance any night to win. I mean, the way he can score, the way he can create, kind of dictates the tempo. And then you pair that with Wade Baldwin. Um, I think guard play is um, crucial um, when you're trying to make a playoff push or have any type of success um, in the modern game today. Um, and they have two guys who can create a shot for themselves at any moment, but can also create for others. And then you surround it with solid guys who fill in well, Bonzi Colston. Um, I really miss um, them having Alex Poitras, um, that live threat, um, that 
presence inside, you know, someone who's experienced, who's good on the switches, you know, who kind of makes them versatile because they all have bigger guards. So when you have those guards, you know, Wade's probably 6'4", Lorenzo's 6'4"-ish, um, you know, you can kind of switch and you can take teams out of their offense, out of their flow, out of the pick and roll game. And, and that's something that Puertes was really good at. But I think, you know, their athleticism, their ability to play fast, um, them having a maestro in the half court, I think there's someone that you have to consider it early in the summer. I was worried about their shooting, you know, for the perimeter. Um, but I think, um, you know, they find a way to, to negate that. Um, and, you know, they're having success and you know, with their home crowd, with, you know, how strong they are, with how they play well there. And they're able to, to, you know, be decent on the road. You know, you know what they're going to give you at home. I think, you know, they're a team that can, you know, stay in that top eight. Um, yeah, I'll let you go ahead and then I'll try. Yeah, I, I, I think that consistency was their problem, uh, because they won three in a row just once this year and they haven't won more than two straight games since uh, November. Uh, and it's hard to be consistent when you have the second worst defensive rating in, in the year league. But the thing is that offensively, they're doing great. Uh, in the second round, they produced the second best offense. Lorenzo Brown should return soon, and he was a, on a great in a great shape uh, before before he got injured. It seems like their duo with Bate Baldwin works way better than a lot many of us expected before the season. They're playing seven of their last eleven games at home, and at home they're so hard to beat to anybody. So I believe that right now they put themselves in a good situation. I just hope that Lorenzo Brown uh, will will return sooner than later. I hope that there won't be any setback in, in his return. And um, I mean, I, I really believe that although this top eight race is very difficult because there are a lot of threats uh, down below the top eight, uh, including FS. Partizan is one of the hottest teams in the EuroLeague right now with eight wins in 10 games. Valencia is, is very solid uh, and I would say underrated uh, team. There are a lot of threats out there. Facundo Campaso uh, will be back in, in place soon at the end of the uh, February. So a lot of threats out there, but I believe that with Lorenzo Brown, they're in a good situation to keep their place in the top eight, although it, it will be very difficult to do. Definitely. I think Maccabi is one of those teams that can not necessarily be a surprise to the competition because once I saw that Lorenzo Brown and Wade Ball were going to be, you know, in that backcourt, you know, I immediately thought that that was going to be one of the best backcourts in the early this year, you know, just off the top because I had a chance to play with Lorenzo and Red Star and that was the year that COVID happened. And I also had the chance to play with Wade Ball in Munich a couple of years ago. And I got to see both of them and what they're both capable of. Both are very athletic guards both are very uh defensive minded both are very unselfish when it comes to trying to make the team better they want to win you know but they're two very different personalities you know it's like a yin and a yang kind of thing and it's like fire and ice you have that with them too and when you put the perfect pieces around them have an athletic bigs you have shooters around them that they can find and a team that can really get out of transition you know they're a team that can definitely be dangerous in the european you know circuit and the fact that they've been able to protect their home court as well as they have, that's one of the key things about going to playoffs or even possibly making the playoffs, defending your home court. You know, you have to win on the road because in playoffs, it's a five, <coughs> excuse me, it's a five game series. You have to get one on the road, especially if you're not the home court advantage team. Got to get one on the road. Um, but the fact that they've shown and proved that, you know, to play 
in Tel Aviv is one of the more, you know, hardest places to get a win. You know, that shows and proves that they are capable of making the playoffs. Um, EuroLeague this season has just been probably one of the toughest competitions that I've seen. You know, unfortunately, I'm not there to because I'm not playing in the EuroLeague this year, but I watch it. I pay close attention to it. And just seeing the level of competition that's here between teams and how, you know, close all the standings are. You know, like you said, you got Valencia, you got Partizan, you got Jaguars, you got Ephes, who's in and out. You know, they're on the brink. You have teams that are really making a push, even like you said, Red Star, that are making a push for those top six, seven, eight spots that are all separated by one or two losses. You know, you mess around and have a bad double week or you lose a couple games, you could be out as opposed to just having any kind of advantage in the playoffs. So, I mean, it's very, with the last 10 games coming up, it's going to be very interesting to see who can hold strong, who can hold the best record, and, and you know, move forward. Maccabi definitely has a big chance. Um, but it's it's close. I mean, Fenerbahce, they started out the season 10-1. and one. <laughs> And you see, you know, after a couple injuries, or just, you know, a couple bad spells, you know, it can change just like that. It can change just like that. So, I mean... It's 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 this is probably the most competitive I've seen EuroLeague in all the years I've been playing, you know, and paying attention to it. It's 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 competitive. I love to see it. I love to see it. We have Olympiacos, Madrid, Barça, Fener, Monaco on top with a slight advantage over other teams. Who who do you see uh, among the other teams completing the top eight picture? Uh, based on your feelings and intuition, watching how those teams are progressing. And who do you see just completing this top eight picture um, between Basconia, Partizan, Maccabi, Valencia, Jalgiris, Efes, Virtus, and Restar? Probably we have as many as like eight, nine teams still competing for, for, for the playoffs. For me, I think um, that top five is pretty much a lock. I think they've kind of solidified themselves, you know, um, bearing any injury. So when I say I say Olympiacos, Madrid, Barcelona, Finner, Monaco, I feel like those ones are probably a known commodity. Um, you know, for me, um, I think Basconia is going to be in there. I like the way they play, um, their offensive movement, the fluidity, how the ball goes side to side, um, you know, how they share. I think that's just a special team that enjoys playing together, that has great chemistry and is constantly, I don't want to disrespect them, but overachieved. I mean, they didn't get any of the fair and fair. Nobody mentioned any of their signings. You know, I tried to warn them about, you know, Darius Thompson being, uh, you know, one of the best uh, surprises of the yearly, but, you know, people don't really understand it until they see it because, you know, he didn't have the yearly experience, but I think he showed that uh, he's one of the top point guards uh, at that level and really, you know, controlling that team, even without, um, you know, Perry Henry right now, you know, missing some time, you know, they haven't missed a beat. Um, Marcus Howard got hurt. They still kept winning. And that's what really impresses me with the team and why I think they'll be in the mix because they faced adversity. They've had those ups, those downs, and they've continued to maintain their position in the standings. Um, I think Maccabi, as I mentioned, they'll be in there as well. Um, so, you know, that's that seven teams I have right there. And then, you know, just because of their home court, you know, seven out of 11 games at home. Um, Lorenzo Brown coming back. So you stayed in the mix with arguably – one of the best point guards, you know, in the year elite, not playing. Um, and then that, what that does is that forces the bench to step up. That forces other players to be thrust into roles. And that creates, um, you know, more weapons for your team because now those guys have seen what they can do, you know, with Lorenzo Brown out. And now you throw him into the mix, you know, now you have so many more options, much more confidence in guys and you have a flow. So, you know, I like them there and, you know, 
it's tough for that eighth spot. You know, I'm not saying it's going to be eighth, but I'm just naming eight teams. Um, yeah, I think you can't go wrong with any, but my intuition says Ephes only because of what they've shown us in the past. I keep waiting for them to hit the switch, you know, and I, I always thought like, you know, last year, maybe this is the year it doesn't happen. You know, the first year, like, you know, every time Shane was hurt and I'm like, ah, they're digging too big a hole. And then, you know, somehow, some way they always found a shovel and they always dug themselves out. So anybody with championship pedigree, you know, with that experience, you know, as long as you got, you know, those two guys in the backcourt and Lurkin and Mises, and then you throw in Will Clyburn, who's an elite player in his own right. You know, I can never count them out. Even though Zagiris has been great, Valencia has been excellent. Partizan has really turned it on late. They've been one of the hottest teams. Um, you see, like, Red Star's going to have Composo coming back. Bologna is starting to figure it out a little bit. Um, even Milan's starting to win some games. Maybe it's too big a hole, but they're starting to win some. I just... I think you can't go against F is just based on sheer talent experience and knowing how they perform when the lights are the brightest and the pressure is the most tense. So, you know, I, I think they're going to find a way to sneak in there barring any major injuries. Um, it's, it's, I agree with you about Ephesus, man. Ephesus is one of those teams where they start out the season bad and they go through rough areas and then they just, like you said, hit that switch, man. They turn up and they end up finding their way in there. So that's definitely one team that I fig feel that is going to find their way into the top eight um, situation. Basconia has been playing great basketball, you know, high-level basketball. They surprised a lot of teams with what they're doing this year. Um, so I definitely think that they can stand a chance, you know, but the hardest thing to even decide right now is with the records and how close they are, who's going to get in, who's going to get out. Because like Eric said, you know, barring injury or just barring a lapse, you know, the thing about, you know, this time of year is timing. Every team should be playing, you know, what was expected of them from the summertime when they made all the signings. At this point of the year, everybody, you know, the month of February is coming up. You have the domestic cups coming up. You have um, everybody making the push for playoff position. You know, all of that stuff comes into play during this time, but usually you have your clear teams that are like, all right, they're just clearly better than everybody. Teams are starting to peak right now, and the records are so close, it's hard to say who's going to get in and get out, especially when you have the point difference, you know, that matters. You know, some teams might have lost some games early on to some teams, and at the end of the day, if they all have the same record, boom, that changes everything. You know, you never know by one team losing or one team winning what could happen, but I like Bascogne. I like Maccabi. And you can't negate that Ephes is the two-time back-to-back champion and that they won't understand or know what to do when it's time to turn it on to make that final push in these last 10 games. But then you look at teams like Partizan, who's, you know, really been on fire lately, you know, coached by, you know, Jellico Obradovich, who's won countless championships. He knows what time it is. He knows what's expected of his teams at this point in time, you know. So, And they have a great home court, you know, in Belgrade. You know, I don't know how many games they have left, you know, in these last 10 at home, but, you know, that could be a deciding factor for them. Uh, Jacques Garris has made a, a push this year that has been unbelievable, you know. It, it was sad to see that the guard went down, you know, with the injury uh, early on, you know, a few rounds ago. But they've still been able to maintain and, you know, hold on and still play good basketball, tough basketball. Um, and so they're definitely somebody, especially with the Final Four, I think, being in Lithuania this year, you know, it's important for them to try to make the push at least. Um, and Virtus Bologna, who has a great coach, you know, they're led by Miros Tedosic. And, you know, he knows what to do. They know what to do. They know how to win. So, I mean, coming down to the stretch, it's hard to say 
who's really going to be in these last, let's say, three spots. If you want to say the first five spots are pretty much set in stone. I think it's more about who's going to get home court advantage, who's not going to have home court advantage in those five. But the last three, like I said, you, you can mess up one week and it can all be different, you know, and the team that you didn't expect could actually get in, you know. Uh, one year I played at Panthenaikos, I think we were like at 15, 16 place. I was the year Rick Pitino came and we had to win seven out of the last nine games to even think that we might make it, you know, and he used to come in the locker room all the time. Like, you know, he was big on, you know, gambling and the probabilities and things. And he was like, you know, is it, if you look at the numbers, is it probable that we might not get in? Is it probable that we might not, we might lose this game because of who we're going against? He's like, yeah, it's probable, but is it possible that we could win? Is it possible that we could make this happen? And, you know, he kind of built our mentality on the possibility instead of the probability. You know, so when you look at these kind of situations right here with the records being so close, I think the one thing that teams and players should not do right now is look at these standards and just lock in. Lock in on what you got to do, because at the end of the day, winning takes care of everything. You win the games, then everything else can kind of play in your favor. And with these records being so close, it's hard to say. It's really difficult to say who these last three picks are going to be. Yeah, I completely agree with you. By the way, Andrea Trincheri in one of the interviews mentioned that he starts looking at standings all in March because earlier than that, it, it's, it's basically, it doesn't make much sense. Although in their situation, it might be even too late because I believe that this year, uh, for sure, you'll need at least uh, above 50% of victories to make the playoffs, which means that probably we're talking about at least 18 wins. And it's it's a big bar for some of the clubs, even Red Star, if they're getting Facundo Campazzo bank uh, back in March, I mean, they're eight wins away from, from having 18 victories. Virtus, we'll see, even Marco Bellinelli is, is delivering at the moment. So they're, you know, switching to this higher uh, gear. But I agree with, with you for the, uh, those five picks. I also love and trust Basconia. Uh, I also cannot imagine top eight without back-to-back -back champs, FS, but the competition for that potentially eight spot uh, between Maccabi, Partizan, Red Star, I mean, it's, it's going to be unbelievable uh, thing to watch for the remainder of uh, 11 games. And talking about teams on top, um, Olympiacos made a statement win against FS. It felt like it was their uh, biggest op opponent of the recent years. I think that they won only one game in the last eight matchups uh, prior to this uh, FS game last week. Uh, we all remember their semifinal loss last year after Vasilya Misic shot. So they made that win against FS without Costas Lucas, who is extremely important for that team, they already showed that uh, they can win without having their star players, whether it's Costas Lucas or Sasha uh, Vizenkov. Uh, they're producing top two offense and defense in the EuroLeague. Uh, together with Real Madrid, they shared the top of the standings. Probably they had the least changes in their team in the offseason, which tells a lot about the chemistry and the way they're building up their game. What do you think about their chances winning the title, which maybe nobody seriously considered before the season, but watching them being consistent, playing good game. We hear all those big coaches like Yesikavitrus, Messino, Rataman saying that although the EuroLeague is very equal this year, they feel that Olympiakos has that upper hand, at least uh, right now. What do you believe about their chances, you know, uh, winning the EuroLeague? 
I think um, it's high. It's higher than anybody else's chances, just because, um, as James touched on earlier, um, the chemistry and the stability is huge for organizations. So when you can keep that core, I know it's extremely difficult to to keep the entire same roster, but they've had the same coach. Um, they've had the same key players. So Lucas has been in that backcourt. I think this is his third year now or fourth year there. Um, Vizinko has been there many years. Papa Nicolau, like these are staples. And so what that means basically is you know what you're going to get from each guy. Um, you know what they're going to bring. And then they mix in, you know, one or two sparks, some different things. Like they bring in Isaiah Cannon, you know, someone to replace a Tyler Dorsey. Um, you know, they bring in Bob Boy, you know, to give you that, that alley-oop threat, um, you know, some athleticism, you know, showing his ability against Ephesus on the switch. I think I was very impressed with the Ephesus win, but I was more impressed with the pure domination of Fenerbahce at Fenner. Um, and those is double week, boom, boom, without without your point guard. Like, it's so hard to play without your lead guard, without the guy who controls, you know, the offense, you know, getting the ball to the right people, making the right decisions. And they went out there one by 20 plus. I mean, it wasn't close. And then they followed that back up and showed it wasn't a fluke. And now we can do it also, you know, at home when we have pressure to win the game. You know, on the road, you're kind of free. You're not expected to win some games when, you know, a guy is sick or out. Um, but at home, you know, especially in Greece, they, they want to protect that home court. So I'm just, well, Vizinko playing at this level, um, you know, with the chemistry, the continuity, with, you know, how good they are defensively um, to go in and hold Fenerbahce team to 73 points um, on their gym, um, had them doing uncharacteristic things, um, guys getting thrown out, uh, you know, focusing on the referee, all different type of things, like things you just don't see. When you see a team get you out of sorts like that, um, you know, there's a reason because they're good, they're talented and, you know, the game is difficult. So I think, you know, with them maintaining that home court, you know, in that first round of the playoffs, which I think they'll, they'll have and with the talent they have, you know, this a joy, you know, what they're happy with each other. I heard by Jokas, you know, from, we had our last guest, Malcolm Delaney, you know, he, he gives that freedom. He gives that belief, that confidence. And, and that's why they're playing, you know, what it seems to me to be free. So, you know, I don't know the percentage if I had to guess, you know, there's no way they don't make the final four, right? Like, just, I just can't see them not there. And, you know, at that point, you know, the Olympiacos fans are going to travel, they're going to support, you know, they're going to come pack out Zagiris Arena. You know, why not? Why, why wouldn't this be the year? You know, they, after getting their heart broken, you know, last year, why not? I think they, at this point, if they can stay healthy, I think they're their favorite and, and the odds are high. Um. Yeah, definitely. I think that right now, Olympiacos, and not just right now, but, you know, for, for a few rounds now, Olympiacos has been playing the best basketball, you know, team-wise. Um, that coach Barzokas, he knows the way. He's won a yearly title with Olympiacos before, so he understands what it takes. You know, he's Greek. He understands the, the culture and, and everything that comes along with coaching Olympiacos as a team. Um, but right now, the way they play basketball is at a very high level. And it's consistent. And I think for them, it's not about who's on the court, you know, because they make the plays, they make the right plays every time. You know, if they see the open person, they, they take a good shot and turn it into great. And then you throw the players that have the quality to make the shots, like a Brzezinkov or, you know, Slukas, like you said, he's been out. But uh, Shaq McKissick has been playing good. They have bigs that can really dominate the paint with Joel Bolenboy, and you got Tyreek Black, who I really like. And then you have uh, Big Moose fall down there. You know, they, they can give you so many different looks defensively and offensively. They just have 
the versatility as a team. And then when you throw confidence in that, when you throw these wins behind that and you throw the timing of what they're doing right now, you put all that together. I mean, it's definitely, you know, a formula for winning a championship. But going forward in the playoffs, you know, you look at these teams that could possibly get in and, and you match up with. At this point, it's who's playing the best basketball, who's the most disciplined. Right now, I see Olympiacos being the most disciplined right now with how they've been playing, no matter who's on the court. Um, that it'd be tough for a team to beat them in the playoff series, but Final Four is only one game. You know, it's all about who's playing the best at that moment, or, you know, you might make some shots, you might miss some shots, anything can happen. So it's hard to say who's actually going to win the final. Do I think the Olympiacos is going to be in the Final Four? I definitely think so with the way that they've been playing and just the momentum that they have right now picking up in the later part of the year. Um, I think that they have a very dominant team. But again, you know, playoffs is all about matchups, who you match up with. You never know. It could just be a bad matchup, you know. And again, I like the way Olympiacos is playing because they don't play selfish basketball. They play great half court and they're also a team that can get out and run and score a lot in transition. Um, but at the same time, you know, a five game series, if it's a bad matchup, you know, anything can happen in these playoffs, but also anything can happen in the final four. So it's hard to say who's actually going to win and if Olympiago is going to win. Are they the favorite? You know, probably across the board of what they're seeing right now um, from a lot of teams, coaches, and, and just, you know, general managers around the league, you would probably say that. But again, it's hard to predict. This is why I love the game of basketball, man, because you still, you just got to play the game. No matter what it says on paper, no matter what it says, you know, Every team still has to play each other. And so we'll be I'll be definitely paying attention and looking in to see what happens. But right now, Olympiacos is playing the best basketball in Europe. That could be a bad reward too to be first place and possibly get an eighth place F is streaking at the wrong time. Like that Listen. could be that could be a horrible <laughs> gift. <laughs> for real, man. For real. It's just it and it happens just like that. It happens just like that, man. And, and you just never know. Especially like like I said, I take it back to Fenerbahce, not to keep any highlight on them, but they started out 10 and 1. They were the number one team. They were the hottest team. Nobody was coming close. And now teams woke up, they focused and got locked in. They had a couple of injuries. And now it's, you know, even playing field. They kind of fell down the standards after, after having the number one spot on hold for so long. It's hard being the number one team because you legit have a target on your back. And teams that come into the playoffs, you know, this year, I don't think there's going to be a team in the playoffs that doesn't belong. You know, years before, you might have had a team that been like, oh, they just made it in because of such and such. So they, you know, this is just how to, it played out, and this is who you get the matchup against, and you got a team that easily wins 3-0. I don't think no team this year that makes the playoffs does not belong. And I think every matchup that every team has, whether it's home court or not, is going to have, you know, a problem. You know, it's going to be some games where it's just like, this. these are some playoff series. This is the most competitive I've seen in EuroLeague in years, in years. And so I definitely think that the playoffs is going to uphold that as well. Yeah, never get too high or never get too low if you're a yearly fan. For the end of the podcast, let's give credit to the best of two-thirds of the EuroLeague season. NBA announced All-Star uh, rosters last week. Uh, EuroLeague All-Star game is also a hot topic and becoming a topic in today's league. And I'm actually hearing that EuroLeague is doing some serious research on whether, whether they should make a move for the All-Star weekend, All-Star game event or not. And I'm hearing that there's a lot of optimism uh, towards uh, this idea. Uh, but let's give credit to the best of the current EuroLeague season and let's name our Team Europe versus Team 
rest of world starters. I believe that the conversation would be way more uh, entertaining if we would also put uh, bench players on our teams because that's where we we have some snubs and somebody going on Twitter saying, "Oh, this is disrespect," like James Harden did. But let's 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 stick with uh, starters only because we can discuss about all these picks for like another entire podcast. Who do you guys have for rest of world team, for instance? Uh, we can go position by position. Position by position. Right. For the world team at point guard, I got um Lorenzo Brown, uh, seventeen and six. Uh, Maccabi's still in the playoffs. I know he's been injured. You know, I know he has a Spanish passport, but to me, he's uh, American, and um, <laughs> he's deserving. Um, not just from his performance with Maccabi, but you know the show he put on at the Eurobasket as well. Me too. I have the same name, actually. Although the competition is high. I mean, a lot of great point guards having great seasons. Uh, Valdosa is very important for Red Star. Chris Jones is doing an amazing job in Valencia. There's Darius Thompson, Dante Exum. But the way Lorenzo, Lorenzo Brown plays is, you know, he, he just, he's the, an elite point guard in today's EuroLeague, uh, considering uh, rest of the world point guards. Right. Uh, I would say probably for my point guard, it would probably be Mike James. Um, I'm a big fan of Lorenzo, don't get me wrong, uh, but Mike has been able to, you know, lead the team and lead the charge as far as them keeping the top of the standings right now. You know, when you look at EuroLeague, um, it's a toss-up. You know, the point guard position is very heavy. Like you said, I like Vildoza a lot, too. And what Vildoza has done this year, especially after coming off the injury and not being on the Euro scene, you know, for so many years when he went to New York and all this stuff, you know, he's come back on the scene. Him and Nedovich, what they're doing in Red Star is crazy. And you throw Compato in the mix, it's going to be interesting to see how that works. I really like what Vildoza has done this year, but if I really had to, like, make a pick at the point guard position, I would go with Mike James. That, that's where, actually, the cheat comes into play because I put Mike James as a shoot, shooting guard. <laughs> Because I, I, win, I win two point guards. <laughs> yeah, I see him like Shane Larkin next to Vasilya Misic. I see Mike James next to Lorenzo Brown. It, it makes a perfect uh, backcourt for me. Hey, we we on the same wavelength. Um, for sure, you, I don't think you can have an all-year league team without Mike James. Um, to me, I always say he's the most talented player in Europe. The things he can do, he's special. And he really has Monaco um sitting as a top team in a yearly which you know many people would not expect or seen and you know pretty much majority of the year they've been top four um and you know people had hopes of them but you know everybody had questions you know when you put together Lloyd um Okobo Mike James you know even you know I had my concerns on how it could possibly work but it's thriving it looks great and you know I can admit you know when you know, I'm wrong. I had hesitation. I thought they would be good, but not this good at all. And I knew Mike would produce, but he's shown his leadership. He's shown what he could do. You know, he's always been a high level player everywhere he's went. He's produced. And I think this is one of the first times that he's kind of took an underdog, you know, from last year and this year as well to, I guess you want to say near the top of the year lead ranks. So who did you have for the shooting guard position, James? For my shooting guard position, man, I would have to go with Mijic. I would have to go with Mijic, and I understand that the team that this is, you know, right now, out of the playoff contention and position, but just what he's been able to do numbers-wise, and I mean, what he's capable of doing, what he's shown over the last couple of years, um, he's definitely been just a, a household name now, um, and he's one of those guys that he can score at a high level, he can make the big plays, 
And this year I've seen him pass a little bit more, make passes that I wasn't used to seeing him making. You know, and so it's kind of showed me that he's actually taking it to another level as far as that go. But I would probably have to say Mijic at the two, you know. Okay. Maybe you're just putting all EuroLeague team because I actually have Mijic on my team Europe. He's on my team so, Europe too. Uh, yeah. So when you say your world, you're talking about only Americans? Uh, rest of world Americans or some big guys from Cape Verde or some so big guys from Argentina. Then give, me, then give me Vildoza at the two. Okay, yeah, okay. Give me Vildoza at the two if this is how we're going to break it down like this. Yeah. My apologies. Yeah. Oh, good. Ah, no problem. Small so, forward. Small forward, for me, is clear. Uh, Will Clyburn, 17 is 6. Uh, you know, um, I like what he brings, you know, from the post-ups, um, his improved three-point shot, off the bounce transition, you know, and then he's a two-way guy. I think um, I like how he responded this week. Adaman said some things about him in the media, um, also about Misic, and he comes out in Turkish lead. Um, I think he has 25 points, 11 rebounds, hits the game winner against Drusafaka. You know, that shows me mentally, you know, he's strong. You know, you can't break him, and and he's here to uh, respond to all challenges. So, you know, Will Clyburn's my three man. Nothing to add. I have the same guy. Which which is exceptional on both ends of the floor. Although competition is is nice. I mean, Bacon, Derek Williams, Bonzi Colson. You can play some 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 shorter guys like Kevin Punter. I know you can put Wade Bolden to your backcourt. But if we are talking about pure small forwards, Will Clyburn doesn't have a competition unless unless there's another Argentinian name which I actually put as my power forward, Gabriel Deck because he's also kind of originally a small forward, although he plays a lot as a power forward in Real Madrid as well. So he's a very versatile player, and I have both of them on my forwards position, both Will Clyburn and Gabriel Deck. I like Will Clyburn. I think it's kind of clear, clear cut and dry when it comes to that decision. You know, what he's been able to show, especially coming from Cheska, um, onto a team who, whose offensive capability was already high. You know, it's like, where where does he fit in? And he showed that he fits in just right. You know, being able to still be a dominant force. And he's shooting the ball really well for the three-point this year. Uh, his activity is great. And, you know, just what he's doing right now in the all-around game is 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 big for them. I think the three position is definitely Will Clyburn. So who do you have as your power forward? So at the four, you know, I, I was – Torn between two players, but I had to give the nod to the guy who has his team in the in the playoff hunt, and I went with Zach Leday. Um, he's averaging eleven points, five rebounds, shooting forty four percent from three. Um, he can pose. He brings energy. You know, he's a guy who's kind of transformed himself. Started out as a five in the Euro League at Olympiacos in those early years, early part of his career, and he's transitioned into a four man shooter um, who can still post up, who can be physical. Um, the other guy I was considering was Derek Williams. We all know his talent. You know, he's having a good year at Panthinacos. The team has been up and down, but um, I ended up picking Zach Liday, and you know I, I like what he brings: um, stability, consistency, and um, you know he's doing it for um, arguably you know one of the greatest coaches to coach in Europe. And you, James? Um, for me, I'm gonna go out on a limb here because of who I'm thinking it should be my five. Uh, is somebody different? I kind of like. I want to put Motley at the four. What Motley's doing at Fenerbahce right now, you know, he's putting up twenty and ten. 
you know, easy. And it's not like they're actually running direct plays for him. You know, he's finding his throughout the system, being in the right place at the right time, rebounding the ball well. Uh, I really like Bartley. I really like Motley and what he's been doing right now. Uh, so I would put him at my four position. Yeah, I believe that he's a highest scoring center in the competition. Yeah, he's 12th best scorer in the EuroLeague, and I don't see any other center uh, above him. So yeah, he's special, and he deserves to be considered as among the all the greatest. But I just didn't see much. Didn't see much competition for for Eddie Tavares, who is as important as always uh, for Real Madrid. Top three rebounder, top eight in the efficiency. Uh, he's he's close to John Motley by his scoring, uh, but he, he he just has a lot of competition around in in Real Madrid team, and since um, Chus Mateo is also uh, distributing minutes pretty equally to 15 and 18 great Real Madrid players, uh, I think that he to, to this day he remained as a focal piece of Real Madrid team. Let's see, I would have Tavares at my five. I'll have Motley at my four. I would just have that lineup in the backcourt. Yeah. We're gonna get some production out of that. Yeah. And for me, I had Motley as my five. Um, you know, it's a guy who's, you know, a little under 15 a game, six boards, and he's doing that in 23 minutes. I think um, his only weakness so far in a year lead has just been sometimes getting in foul trouble. But the way he dominates inside, it's like he's too strong. Um, so he bullies guys, rebounds, scores. He has great touch around a basket, you know, shoots a high percentage, you know, a little under 61% from twos. But also, you know, he's he's agile, he's graceful, he's quick. Um, and, you know, he has uh, been the focal point of the Fenerbahce offense, you know, been the most consistent player, uh, been the most dominant. And you know, I think he's kind of broke out, you know, as I expected this year. You know, a lot of people thought because it was his first time in a year elite, you know, there would be an adjustment period. But, you know, I harped you know, countless times on the air that, no, there will be no adjustment. Uh, he's ready for this level and, and he's shown it. Yeah, so shall we start with Team Europe? And as an European representative, uh, I'm starting with Vasilya Misic, top five scorer, third most efficient player. He's still carrying uh, FS team, whether Shane Larkin is playing or not. Okay, they're losing, but probably nobody can question uh, his his quality as the be coming off as a best point guard uh, from Europe in the EuroLeague. Yeah, um, I had Misic as well. I mean, the numbers speak for themselves. 17-6, um, you know, brings it every night, been consistent for them, also been relatively he healthy. Um, and, you know, you just know what you're going to get from him every game. And, you know, he keeps efforts always in the mix, you know, just because, of you know, that backcourt is the reason why, you know, no one ever loses faith in him regardless of how they start. Um. Based off of the season, I understand what's, you know, happening with the team, but I think it's hard to overlook Nando DiColo and uh, what he's been doing. Uh, I think I would have Nando as my point guard in this situation. Um, I know as And you stick with Misic? And you stick with Misic as a shooting I, guard? And I have Misic as my two, yep. I have him as okay. my all-ball guard. But I, I like what Nando's been doing and what he's been able to do his entire career in Europe is just exceptional, you know, um, and even though Asville is not at the top of the standings and what they've been doing, it's not like they've necessarily been getting blown out of every single game. A lot of games they were in and they lost it towards the end, but Nando's performance was still bar none, you know, and I, I like Nando DiColo as a point guard. I actually had Nando DiColo as my two, um, you know, I, so too. I'm a fan of him, <laughs> like how he scores, how he draws foul. He, 
you know, I believe he's 35 years old and, you know, he's still playing like he did at 30. So um, he's the probably sole reason why Asvel has been, you know, in the mix, um, competitive in all their games. And, you know, I won't hold, you know, their record or their lack of playoff push against him because, you know, he's still an elite player. Yeah, so we I'm, agree I'm a on fan. the one and two situation. It's just yeah. it'll change, but need to change. And the color are definitely the ones and the twos in this situation. For sure. That's true. The call is a hell of a player. I even think that he's a little bit uh, underrated in the historical yearly context because usually we hear this conversation who is the goat of the Euroleague? And many throw those big European names like Vasilis Panoulis, Dimitris Dimantidis, Juan Carlos Navarro. But I think that uh, Nando de Colo is overlooked. He's a two time Euroleague champion. He's a hell of a scorer. He's, he's always productive. He's always efficient. And I believe that if he didn't spend those four years in the NBA, uh, I believe for San Antonio Spurs, his numbers would be even better, higher, and maybe he would have even more titles in the Euroleague. Uh, and even now, to this day, he's the top all-time um, European competitions scorer. He just became uh, the top scorer in the all European Cups, starting from Korac Cup, uh, Euro Cup, uh, Euroleague, BCL, and others from 60s, from 70s. He, he's the number one guy above uh, many historical names, and he was always on a huge pace uh, scoring-wise. So he's a great player. He he's still carries Asphalt team, and it's just great to see him winning some of those uh, close games, even if they're playing the powerhouses of the EuroLeague. Who do you have as your small forwards? So my small forward is Musa from Real Madrid. I think, um, you know, when you had him buried, everybody thought, you know, he was finished. He came to FS and, you know, he just, he was missing something. So he takes that year off. He goes to Spain, plays on a smaller team, and he kind of finds himself, builds that confidence, and is dominant. Uh, top scoring ACB. And then you still kind of wonder, you know, will he be the guy at Madrid? Um, you know, it's still Sergio's team. Uh, Mario Hazonia's coming in. Like, who's going to take that role? And he kind of, you know, just took it by storm and, um, you know, showing what he's done. And in only 24 minutes a night, um, he's producing 15, 3, and 3 um, for a team who's tied first place in the Euro lead. I think, um, you know, his ascension to the Euro lead, his consistency, um, his knack for hitting clutch shots. Just showing that he's a high-level player, and that FSG was more of a fluke, and this is the real Musa. Um, I agree with that, and I was conflicted with where to put him in the conversation because he's definitely been a lead to the charge. And, you know, it's one thing, you know, when you're playing for Madrid, you're playing with a top team that you know is exciting to watch. But when you see a player come into his own and play with the confidence and, the, and the, the tenacity that he's managed to play with during this time, it's it's fun to watch. It's really fun to watch. And you're seeing him come up and just be a top dominant player for a top dominant team in the European circuit right now. I 100% I agree with the three position. Yeah, for me, he's a next Sergio Yu. I mean... From time to time, he tends to hit those crazy shots. He's not afraid of uh, taking responsibility in the clutch moments. He's still very young. He's in the right environment. But I, as Eric said, few could uh, have seen that he will trans transmit his offensive talent from the ACB, from, uh, from being a MVP of the ACB to the EuroLeague uh, to become the top scorer of this uh, deep team like Real Madrid. So the transition he made is, is crazy. And even though I, I consider him more as a shooting guard in this Real Madrid uh, team, next to 
a lot of big tall guys like Hazonia, like Gabidek, Yabusele and others. Um, it would be a crime not to put him in, in Team Europe uh, starting five. And I'm afraid that in a power forward position, we also have the same guy for sure starting five. For sure. Sasa Vizinko. I mean, 18.7 rebounds a night. And his uh, shooting splits are insane. Almost 65% from two, a little under 43 from three, 87 from the line. And what's special about him is, you know, most finesse guys, they're just shooters. You know, this is the guy who's going to get seven boards a game. He's mixing it up, who doesn't over dribble, doesn't have the ball a lot. He's doing it efficiently, back cuts, spot up shooting, finding the spaces, the openings, transition. Um, he's a guy that you can really pluck and place any team in a year lead and he'll find a way to be efficient and successful. And he's my front runner for the MVP of the year lead. Pretty, pretty clear. First place team. He's done it all, all season. Yeah, I'd have to agree. I think that the, you know, the hard decision is, is do you pick Sasha Vizanko or do you say Nikola Miritic? who both kind of have similar numbers who teams are both dominant, you know, what they've been doing. I think right now Sasha is the hot name. And I think that's what you're always going to hear, you know, with Olympiacos being at the top of the standings and him, you know, being a huge part of their success. I think that it's only right to give it to him. But again, you know, you still have that split with between him and Miritich, who do you pick? I think that right now the pick should be Sasha Vizenko, but, you know, Miritich is also a great runner-up for that situation. Yeah, and I also think that Vezenkov has an advantage over Mirotic because he was injured till December. So Mirotic played only 13 games. And I think that it also counts uh, if we have to choose uh, the best one. And center position, I also have a feeling that we might have the same name. Mephis Lazort. Um, this is a guy who plays with extreme energy. Um, he's what I say for big men that playing hard is a skill. Um, the motor he has, um, the offensive rebounding is sensational. Um, his screening, his cutting, his rolling, his finishing. I mean, he's going to give you some highlight plays, but, I mean, he has partisan in the playoffs. He's the driving force. Um, yes, you have Punter, who's been great. You have um, Zach Day, but this is the heart and soul of partisan. You know, he gets the fans involved. He's averaging 13 and 7, um, and he's shooting, um, you know, high clips, high percentages. And I just – I like what he brings, you know, to the team. Like, I think um, – you know, anytime you have someone who who makes effort plays, who does the little things, um, you know, who brings that attention um, uh, to the team when they need it like that, the extra energy when things are kind of slow. You know, he does those things, but he also you know gives you the meat and potatoes, which is those points, those rebounds. You know, so it's not just the guy who does things that you can't find on the stat sheet, which he does do. He also does things does things that you can see clearly in the stats, and um, you know, he he's the driving force. You know, for me, second highest PIR on a team at over 20 and, you know, a guy that people just didn't, you know, kind of slip on, I think. And I think he's kind of woke up the entire year lead and, you know, you know, he's in that mix yet, not quite at the Motley and, you know, Tavares level, but he's right there next. Um, And there's no center better than him after those two. Um, I would have to back Eric on this as well, even though like, you know, I'm a fan of uh, Jan Vesely. You know, and what he's been doing, able to switch and change into to Barcelona stage. But um, Matias Lazord has definitely been a driving engine for partisan success. You know, he's one of those guys that uh, he, he sparks energy within everything he does. Rebounding, dunks, blocks, 
all of that. You know, he's coming with it. And you talk about an all-star game, you want the fans to be involved and be excited about what's really going on. I think Matias Lazo would be a definitely great, you know, pick for the starting five of the Euro team going into the all-star game. Yeah. Entertainment-wise, he's he, he's the best. He even attended some Serbian wedding. I mean, it's 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 just crazy in what crazy situations Matias put himself uh, from time to time. But he's so important for Partizan. When he's on the court, Partizan outsc outscores their opponents by 16 points per 100 possessions. Of course, that's related to the fact that the lack of depth, depth in the front line and unless they're exactly Day playing as a five, they usually have problems when Lazor uh, gets benched. But his importance in this team is, is great. And I, I just loved his rise in the EuroLeague because he had a decent uh, rookie experience with Red Star in the EuroLeague. But then, whether it was Bayern Munich or especially Maccabi, where he, he signed just for uh, two months and couldn't uh, stay in the team when Reynolds and Zizic were both uh, healthy. I didn't see him returning so successfully as he did uh, this year with Partizan. So I'm happy for him and I'm happy that we, we see uh, same lineup for, for Team Europe. It's, it's just that physical dominance that he brings, you know. There was one game, I think, in the EuroLeague a few weeks ago where he had 10 offensive re or 10 rebounds in the first quarter. You know, and it's like when he plays like that, off the energy like that, especially in Belgrade Arena or Stark Arena, as they call it, you know, and you have all the fans behind you, man. That's 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 hard. He's hard to compete with. He's a body, you know. He's strong. He's powerful, and he plays with nothing but energy. He he, he loves the physical contact, um, and he understands that he is in the driver's seat when it comes to pushing the team and making plays so that the team falls behind. I mean, you have other players on the team that are doing a great job as well, like Kevin Ponder or, or Papa Petru or even Dante Exum has really been playing good this year at, at a position that I don't think he was so comfortable with prior to this. Um, but you have guys that are stepping up, and he's just one of those guys that it's like, like you said, when he's on the court, the team is just doing that much better because of his presence, defensively and offensively. Yeah, to me, um, Lazort, he plays like a guy who's on open contract. Like like he has a, a, a one-day deal, and every year, I mean, every day, Partizan has the option to renew the deal. Like this is a guy, that's the type of energy he's bringing. That's the type of effort, type of consistency. Like I never seen someone who plays that hard, who seems like they never get tired. I don't know what he's drinking before the games, the coffee, the caffeine, but he just needs to stick with it because this guy has an unbelievable motor. <laughs> you're right. You're right. So we have great starters. I believe we have a great slam dunk contest with Dante Hall, Josh Nebo, Wade Baldwin, Dante Exum, or anybody else. Three-point shooting contest should be exciting with Billy Barron, Marcus Howard, La Provitola, Wilbekin, Cannon, Lloyd, you name it. Do you like this whole yearly All-Star Weekend idea and do you believe that it's possible uh, to realize it in a region, in, a, in, in the continent where the every game matters, where everybody wants to see uh, teams fighting for something and whether these people will accept just this random nice game for, for any, everybody enjoy the pure pure beauty of basketball. I love it. Uh, it's a place where they can increase the awareness of the year lead. Um, where else can you get all these stars, you know, in one place? Um, it helps with the growth of basketball. You know, it puts a little bit of money in a year lead's pocket. You know, you pick a big arena, big stadium. You know, you sell at a a decent price premium dollar and you know people are going to want to see that people are going to want to see these type of players um 
these are, you know, game changers, guys who come through. Um, a lot of them you know, will be record holders um, or already are. And, you know, if they're talking about, you know, becoming a player league, continue to expand, continue to grow, what better way than to put the best of the best on the stage and give them that platform to spread the beauty of the EuroLeague? Mm, definitely. I think, you know, one of the biggest things that EuroLeague has always been trying to do is how to expand, how to, how to make EuroLeague bigger. You know, it's always been a thing. Um, and one way that could it could be done is through the fan base. How do you increase the fan base? You increase the fan base by giving them an opportunity to see some of their best players, favorite players, all in one venue. You know, as opposed to just coming once or twice a month to see the biggest game, you know, you have a chance where you can bring in everybody. And that right there alone increases the awareness of what EuroLeague is, who the top players are, because of the, right now you have EuroLeague as the second best league in the world behind the NBA. Um, and to be able to, then you have guys like Doncic who are speaking on, you know, how it's a lot more difficult to score in Europe than it is in the NBA. And he's actually doing what he's doing in the NBA. You have European guys in the league that are commenting about European basketball. This kind of gives light to not only the foreign players that are coming from Europe to the NBA, but also the American players that have been playing in Europe for so long and have been able to play at a high level to be able to be considered an all-star of EuroLeague. I mean, it puts, you know, emphasis on so much. And in that in that essence, I think it's something that would definitely help bring more attraction to your league. It'll give them another chance to create a fun event, fun weekend, I guess, as you said, dunk contests and three-point contests and all that stuff. I hope they wouldn't do all that in the same day. But, um, you know, just having that over a weekend in a place, you know, during the season, I think that it would definitely be something that would be a positive light because, I mean, you have some great players that's playing over here that a lot of people would never even know about or not people would not even expect that this is what they're really doing, you know, and it, it would bring a lot of attention to it. I think that's something that's very positive as well as the financial aspect. I mean, it's just another venue to bring more money into to yearly. Amen. Amen. Gentlemen, thanks for your time, for your knowledge and experience you shared with us. I hope our fans will take fans and players as well huge basketball community is actually following this podcast so i hope everyone will take uh, a lot of good things from this conversation thanks a lot once again and let's get back to our daddy duties now <laughs> definitely definitely man. i know you hear mine i know you hear it so